0: episode, I welcome New York Times bestselling author, Stuart Gibbs. It's so great to be talking to you today. And to start off, let's talk about you. Can you introduce yourself, tell us what you do, and where you are located?
1: Uh, Hi, I'm I'm Stuart Gibbs. I'm the author of the Fun Jungle series and the Spy School series, the Moonbase Alpha series, the Charlie Thorne series. Uh, These are all books for middle grade readers, although I, I hope that people even older than middle grade will like them as well. Uh, I uh, before all that, I actually studied to be a biologist, a field biologist. So I so I did study capybaras uh, for a period of time, and uh, right now I uh, live in Los Angeles with my family.
0: Awesome. Okay, can you tell our Club 15 guests all of the series that you've written?
1: Oh, okay. All right. So all the series I've written. So I started with the Fun Jungle series then the Spy School series, the Last Musketeer series, the Moonbase Alpha series, and now the Charlie Thorne series.
0: Yes, they're all very good. I've read all of your books.
1: Thank you so much, oh, Kate.
0: Very great. Okay, so you started writing when you were in kindergarten, and do you remember any of those early stories, or do you keep any of those drafts from when you were a kid?
1: Oh my god, wait, I, you know what? I can, can you excuse me for one second? Hold on, I'm gonna go get one. All right, hold okay. on. um, All right. Yes, uh, this is uh, called "The Day the Dinosaurs Came Back." I wrote this in kindergarten, and uh, it was put in my school library. There's the card to check it out. Uh, this is—you uh, can see uh, that I was not an illustrator, really. I was—I was a, I was an inspiring writer. Uh, so this is a book about uh, dinosaurs coming back to life that uh, I wrote way before Michael Crichton wrote Jurassic Park. So it's possible he stole this idea from me, although I'm not sure. Uh, uh, I I wrote lots of stories when I was a kid, but but, uh, the fact that uh, my school librarian put this one in the school library and let other kids uh, read it was really, really influential to me. Uh, It was really exciting to, uh, for the first time, have other uh, kids my age be able to come up to me and tell me they read my book and want to talk to me about it.
0: Wow, that's actually really funny because a few days ago I found this that I wrote in kindergarten. Oh
1: really what, wait a oh, puppy oh
0: it's about me getting a puppy and I also was on illustrator.
1: Oh there there you go. Wait wait wait. Oh, um now uh was that uh about you getting an actual puppy or was that like a a blatant ploy by you to get a puppy from your parents?
0: <laughs> um I it was about me getting my puppy but oh, okay. I found that a few days ago so that's really funny.
1: That's um, great.
0: Okay, so now let's talk about your process of writing books. When do you write, where do you like to be? Do you write during the day or at night
1: uh well uh this is where I write right here. This is my office uh It's pretty much the only place I write, even when it's not a pandemic uh, i I really like to write in in this one spot uh It's very quiet and uh, I, I can't write like in a coffee shop or something like that. Uh, I uh, start uh, really thinking about ideas uh, for only to write well before I start writing them, which, which I think is pretty common among authors. Uh, so some of my ideas like Spy School are ideas I had when I was a kid, uh, but at the, at the very least, I'm, I'm really playing around with an idea for, for a year, uh, maybe even two before I write it. And so say for the Fun Jungle series, Uh, or or maybe Charlie Thorne ones that I I really have to do research. I will start uh, start reading up on it. I will try and find some experts in the fields uh, I want to learn about and I will interview them and I will uh, take all those ideas and I start uh, by putting, uh, just jotting ideas down on yellow pads and I have yellow pads all over my office. I fill up these yellow pads with ideas and then uh, I will, uh, eventually that will become an outline I am a big believer in outlining. Uh, That does not mean that that is a requirement for anybody who wants to write to outline, but but, uh, I do outline my stories before I start writing them. And then it takes me about uh, three to six months to write the first draft. Uh, depending on what is going on in my life, and uh, you know, uh, uh, my my writing schedule is often dictated by my children's schedule. So if it's summer and they're not in school, and we're trying to travel around, it might take me a bit longer to write a first draft. Uh, obviously, after you finish the first draft, you're not done. Uh, then you have to do another couple of drafts. I actually more than a couple. I do about ten. Uh, which is kind of on the low end of what a lot of authors do. Uh, I have author friends who at least claim to do 40 drafts. Uh, so all those additional drafts takes uh, another year at least. And, and so from the time I really start working on like actually physically writing a book till the time that book comes out is about uh, two years. And then you ask whether I did. I wrote it, it during day or night, and and because of uh, when, when before I had kids, I would kind of write whenever I felt like it. Now I pretty much write uh, during the day uh, and sort of match their 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 school schedule.
0: When you get an idea for a new character or a new plot, what is the first thing you do? <laughs>
1: Oh, okay. So, uh, well, I would say I, I, I'm probably a little more plot-driven than character-driven. So, so I will uh, really uh, start uh, playing with plot ideas. And You know, one of the things is that, that uh, often, uh, uh, you know, plot ideas can be from, they can come from sort of anywhere. And so I, you know, I, there's certainly plots I, or, or books I've written that are pulling on ideas that I had you know at multiple different points in my life and that I'm I'm taking those ideas from you know some it could be an idea I had when I was 12 and another idea I had when I was 20 and another idea I had when I was 30 and an idea I had two weeks ago. And, uh, but I, I, you know, you just keep all these ideas are sort of tumbling around your head. And, and, and so I'm, I'm jotting these ideas down and character really to me sort of comes out of plot in a big way. Uh, one of the most important things I like to do is, is make my main characters very intelligent characters. Uh, it's why I like mysteries because it's, it's a story where the smartest person wins but I feel that uh, the way that really smart people are portrayed, particularly in movies and television, a lot of the time is not uh, very flattering uh, and not really very accurate. Uh, if if you saw the show The Big Bang Theory that shows all these really smart people as social misfits, uh, that's not how really smart people are in my experience. And they tend to be actually really socially adept and adventurous and athletic and often really, really funny. And so I, I want my, my main characters to really... Uh, reflect that
0: definitely and my all-time favorite character is erica hale in the oh, cool. series i've always wanted to play her if it comes out as a movie so she's my favorite character um, I, I
1: i will i'm doing my best for that kate i really am
0: <laughs> so what do you do when you get stuck with your writing
1: Ah well, uh, okay. So first of all, for anybody out there who writes, you should know that that writer's block happens to everybody. So uh, if if you ever get stuck, don't think like it's just you. Uh, Even professional writers get stuck. Uh, I uh, will uh, take a step back from the computer. I I find that sitting at the computer and sort of going like, "Why can't I? I come up with anything?" is not really helpful. So. you know, if, if you step back, that, that doesn't mean go off and play video games. It means do something uh, that can sort of free your mind up to, to play around with ideas. So for me, the best thing is taking a walk around the neighborhood or going for a hike. Uh, but I do know other people who will do yoga or meditate. Uh, and then I often do go back to the yellow pad. And I, and I start jotting down ideas and, and working out that that uh, where, where I need to go to sort of get myself excited about writing again.
0: How long did it take you to f- complete your first book, and how long did it take you to find a publisher?
1: Oh, boy. Uh, well, okay, so um, the, I'll, I'll say this. The, the, the first book, I uh, there, were, there were many, many books after the day the dinosaurs came back uh, that I wrote trying to get published. I was trying to get published all through uh, middle school and high school and i i actually i even uh, even uh college i after that kind of thought okay maybe i shouldn't even try books i'll i'll try movies which actually did work out i ended up working in the movie industry but i was still sort of playing around with book ideas all along uh so um i'll say that i i was I had a lot of fits and starts in trying to publish, so it's it's almost hard for me to say. Well, how long was I working on belly up my first book before I got published? Because I really had sort of multiple attempts to try and make something of that book before it, it actually did sell. And. Uh, one of the secrets about belly up is that I, when I originally conceived it, the first book of the fun jungle series, I thought that was going to be a a mystery series for adults. Uh, and I thought that the, the zoo vet, like a young zoo vet would be the one who discovered that the hippopotamus had been murdered and investigate himself. Uh, it was my, uh, my current agent, uh, who, uh, my very first phone call with her, she suggested to me that, uh, the possibility of maybe writing for middle grade, which I had not really thought of until that phone call. Uh, and the moment she said that I thought, oh my gosh, this, this, this zoo mystery idea I have would be great for middle grade. Uh, and, uh, because you know, it was a crime that a kid could solve in part because it was a crime. The police wouldn't actually think was a crime in the first place. So if he, he calls the police in the book and says, somebody murdered the hippo and they say, that's not murder, that's hunting. Right. So, uh, so I once I reconceived it, uh, I was actually able to sell that version of it without writing the full book, which was kind of a rare experience. I only had to do an outline and a couple sample chapters and was able to sell belly up without without fully finishing it. Most people have to finish the book and sell the entire book uh, the first time. But I, you know, that although that piece worked out well, there had been plenty of years of things not working out until I sold it.
0: That's great that it worked out for middle. Middle grades because I love Billy. It's one of my favorites. So that's great. Okay. So now let's talk about your books and how you weave in conservation facts. So what inspired you to weave in educational lessons and facts that relate to wildlife and conservation?
1: Uh, well, okay. So obviously, as I said, I, I had started as a biologist and uh, I was always fascinated, but my fasc- that was because I was fascinated with animals my whole life. When, when I was a kid, uh, when I was even younger than you, I wanted to go to the zoo every day. I was always uh, hiking around in the woods near my house. My friends and I uh, tried to catch as many lizards and snakes as we could and sort of had our own little uh, reptile zoo in our garages. And uh, so I was I was always fascinated by Animals, but uh, and I, I I know I was joking around about uh, Michael Crichton stealing my idea, uh, but I was a huge fan of Michael Crichton as a kid. Uh, I read his book Congo when I was in probably sixth grade, and I was just blown away. It was this great adventure, but it also had all these amazing scientific facts in it. And that was something that Crichton did repeatedly throughout his writing. He would weave science and adventure together. And I I, I always loved that. I found that fascinating. And so I wanted to do a bit of that when I wrote my book. And so the idea that I was setting something in a zoo gave me the opportunity to sort of share things about animals that that, uh, people might not know. And And I thought it was fun to take an animal like a hippopotamus, which a lot of everybody knows what a hippopotamus is, but they don't necessarily know what a hippopotamus is actually like, and that there's this general con- conception that uh, a hippo is this sort of docile, gentle animal, but they're really aggressive and territorial, and uh, far more dangerous to humans than uh, any other large land animal in Africa, except for the Cape buffalo, uh, which is kind of a tie. Uh, you know, uh, it's not like the hippo and the Cape buffalo, you know say every year, hey, who can kill the most humans? And then it sort of goes back and forth uh, between them. And, uh, and I thought this was this fascinating animal. It was fun to share all these facts about hippos and weave them into the story. And yeah, of course, it's not just hippos that uh, come to play. It, you know, I've, I've gotten to write about all these other animals that fascinate me throughout the series. And what I love about writing the series is that uh, I don't, uh, when I write it, I'm not just a, an author, but I actually still get to be a biologist. And then, of course, writing about uh, uh, the, you know the natural world and animals just naturally led into writing about conservation issues. Uh, in in part, uh, in a big way, because uh, part of my job is to go to schools and talk to students in schools. And after I wrote the first two books in the Fun Jungle series, uh, Belly Up and Poached, I realized that kids, I mean, they really cared about the environment and. Uh, they were ready for bigger issues like uh, discussing uh, you know, poaching of rhinos uh, for their horns and elephants for their tusks, or about animal trafficking, uh, which is a, a, a massive crime, or about human-wildlife conflict and, and uh, issues that uh, really uh, affect all of us and that we can do something about.
0: And I remember when I first read your book, I wasn't a huge animal advocate, but then once I was a huge animal advocate like I am now, I went back and read your books, and I found all those little conservation facts you put in there, and I thought that was super cool. And okay, so now, do you visit any organizations or places early on to learn all that you need to know for your draft of the Fun fun Jungle series?
1: Uh, you know, the fun jungle series was really, uh, based, uh, on kind of my love of zoos and having gone to as many zoos as I could. And now I, when I was studying capybaras, I, I was doing my research at the Philadelphia zoo. It, w- it was actually a science, uh, it, it, I'm sorry. It was, it was my, uh, it was a project I had to do for, for college, uh, to find an animal and do research. And even though I was at a zoo. You can still learn a decent amount about an animal by watching at the zoo. It's not the same thing as watching in the wild, but uh, I we did not have the opportunity to go down to the Amazon or the, or the Orinoco basin to do research. So uh, we would do research at the zoo, and uh, I ended up spending a lot of time at the zoo, going behind the scenes, talking to zookeepers, and uh, just started to realize what a fascinating place a zoo was, what a great place it would be to set a story. Uh, then I visited as many other zoos as I could. Uh, when, when I first started, uh, writing belly up, since I'm in, in, uh, Southern California, I actually was able to get behind the scenes at the San Diego zoo, which actually has a really great, uh, uh system in place to uh, it really, uh, anybody, uh, who uh, wants to can get a, a VIP tour of the San Diego zoo, which costs more money, but it does go to, to the zoo, which is, uh, um. Which is a nonprofit, and they will take you behind the scenes of just about any exhibit you want to get behind. Uh, if, if, uh, if, if you know, with certain parameters, you can't do anything you want, but you can, uh, you can go and talk to the keepers and and get close to the animals and see how they're cared for. And so, uh, experiences like that really drove my understanding of how a zoo work. Now, I, I will say that in the fun jungle series, I didn't set it at a real zoo because I wanted things to go wrong. So I created this fake sort of theme park zoo that's really driven more by money than uh, conservation at first. And the idea for that was to, was to not uh, point the finger at actual uh, zoos in this country and say, hey, things go wrong there. Uh, it was to say, oh, maybe if you were, uh, if you had a, a, a theme park zoo that was really thinking about money first and conservation second, things might go wrong that wouldn't go wrong at a normal zoo.
0: Yes. And I remember in one of your fun jungle books, don't you talk about a snake farm zoo?
1: I do. Yes. Yeah. Uh, in, in Tyrannosaurus Rex, there's, there's a place called uh, Snakes Alive, and it takes place at um one of these uh uh sort of non-accredited uh, zoos and uh, and you know i that actually came out of me uh talking to uh, a couple uh, zookeepers and i you know whenever i meet with them i say like hey, what is something that you would like young readers to know and the idea came up often that they felt that uh the the term zoo It is not a very accurate term uh, that uh, people sort of lump all these zoos together. So there are uh, AZA accredited zoos, which are most uh, municipal zoos in this country, which have very rigorous standards for animal care. And then there are all these other places Uh, That get, you know, just claim to be zoos, uh, but uh, they're really, you know, sort of um, privately run and often are not uh, exerting uh, the standards of care that an AZA accredited zoo would have. And uh, the, the, the zookeepers thought that the public just sort of lumps all these together. And there's lots of people who say like, Oh, I went to a zoo once and they took terrible care of the animals and they're all prisons for animals. And it's terrible. And, uh, you know, they, a person AZA uh, accredited zoo works really hard and really cares about animals and is doing everything they can to keep those animals, uh, healthy and mentally stimulated. And, so uh we probably need a better term for, than just zoo that applies to every uh you know every place that you could see pay to see animals uh so they they uh, this idea came up that um that there was this real discrepancy uh between uh, uh, an AZA accredited zoo and another zoo and it's not to say that every one of these non accredited zoos uh is Bad. Uh, they're, they're sort of all over the gamut, but I, I wanted to write about one that wasn't really uh, um, that well run. And uh, it is, I will say, technically uh, based upon me uh, going to a couple of these places and and seeing how they, they were run. Uh, so I did actually uh, financially support them by going in to do my research, but I but I, I wanted to see uh, uh, what took place at these places, and and then I I created uh, sort of an amalgam of them called Snakes Alive uh, in the book.
0: And I actually mentioned this because I just finished reading Tyrannosaurus Rex, and I was going on a road trip and I actually drove by one of the snake farms. Right, yes. And I saw it and I was like, oh my gosh, and I realized that was actually a real place. So yeah, that was really cool. That's why I mentioned it. Okay, so now um, so I learned a lot about koalas in your book called Poach. For example, I had no idea that a koala smells like a cough drop and how much eucalyptus they eat. And what are some other cool animal facts that you found out?
1: Uh, well, w- one of the things about koalas, uh, as you may recall, is that um, – they they don't uh, use their brains a whole lot and and it seems to be that they may be one of the only animals that whose brain seems to have gotten a little smaller over the past uh, couple thousand years that they when they look at a, a koala's brain and, and its skull the, the brain seems to have shrunk a little bit so uh koalas don't seem to be mentally challenging themselves very much but it's working out for them okay their their system works uh probably the most ridiculous but fascinating fact I learned when I I was doing research for pandemonium was that um, pandas poop out more in weight than they eat every day. Uh, (laughs) And uh, so for a moment you go, wait a minute, how can that possibly be true? Like, How how could an animal survive like that? And and the answer is that uh, pandas, uh, they they are bears, uh, but they, they eat. Mostly plants, and uh, you know they still kind of have a carnivore digestive system and pandas actually do occasionally eat meat, uh, but uh, it's pretty rare and uh, so their their body is really poorly designed to eat bamboo that they're famous for eating, so they don't uh, get a whole lot of energy from it, and most of that bamboo comes right back out again, and uh, the bears also have to drink a lot of water, so the combined weight of the you know, the water and the food uh like they get like this tiny bit of nutrition and then they, a lot of it uh, comes out the other end. Uh, so so panda uh, does technically, between the water and the food, take in more in weight than it poops out every day. But if you just looked at the food going in and what comes out, pandas poop out more than they eat, uh, which just is a ridiculous fact. And, uh, and uh, it also means they go to the bathroom a lot. And uh, sometimes when you're doing research, I'm trying to put a mystery together and you hear a fact like that and you go, not only is that a fact that my uh, readers will love because it involves poop, but it also is a fact that I can actually hang an entire reveal of a mystery on. And uh, so uh, so the, you know, the, there's sometimes these like lightning moments. You're like, wow, I know how, exactly how to make that fact work in the story. And, uh, and, and then I get to talk about uh, panda poo all the time.
0: Oh, that's hilarious. Wow. Okay. Um. Do you think it's important to tell kids my age that they can take action to help save endangered animals?
1: Oh, it absolutely is. Uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, sadly, your generation is sort of growing up with a lot of uh, sort of gloom and doom in the news about about the environment, about about climate change uh you even are dealing with people denying that uh climate change is happening and I think it can be really overwhelming and uh but but we, we uh my generation and the generations before uh mine are really kind of handing you this this planet and saying, okay, you've got to take care of this thing and we haven't done the best job. And so uh, I, I think it can seem maybe daunting, but I, I think, uh, there's, you know, two important things is one to know that uh, what the challenges are, but also to know that there are things that you can do about them. And the only way anything's going to change is if we do try to do something about it. So, uh, I, it was, it was actually, I was actually working on a uh, big game, which was the third book in the fun jungle series, uh, and, and which was about uh, uh, rhino poaching and thinking like, oh, I wanted to put something in the back of it to tell kids what they could do. But then uh, poached hadn't even come out. And in, at that point, I was realizing that uh, you know koalas are more in danger than a lot of people realize. And I went to my publisher and said, before the book comes out, can we put a little thing in the back of the book saying, uh, hey, uh, koalas are endangered, and here's stuff you can do to help. And Uh, So now that has happened in the back of uh, every one of the books in the Fun Jungle series is 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 a little uh, bit by me uh, as uh, as the author uh, sort of laying out uh, what what the challenges are and what uh, uh, kids your age or adults or anybody can really do to to try and make a change.
0: Awesome! And on that topic, I actually want to read something from this book I have right here lying down. All right. And because I want to give to tell readers what you put in the back. Okay, so in the back of this book, so you wrote habitat loss is the single greatest threat to animals all over the earth. As the human population keeps growing on earth, the issues of habitat loss and human wildlife conflict are only going to get worse. You can take care to reduce the potential for human wildlife conflict around your home by not leaving food out where raccoons or possums can get into it or not letting your cat run free so that kills local birds. If your community is building new roads and schools, you can get involved and pressure your leaders to make sure that they are providing wildlife quarters to allow animals to still move around with as little human contact as possible. And I love this passage because it's telling my, it's telling kids my age how we can take action and become part of the solution. And so I just wanted to mention that when we were on that topic, but yes, I think it's amazing that you put that in the
1: back of your box. Oh, thank you. Actually, I should say, uh, you, you asked about my doing research before, and, and one of the groups that I've gotten very involved with is the World Wildlife Fund. Uh, after I wrote Big Game, uh, a woman there named Giovanna Grine wrote to me and said she was from the Animal Crimes Division of the World Wildlife Fund, which I did not even know existed. And so I have met with them, I've talked with them several times, and often when I'm putting together those lists of things people can do, uh, I, I get that information from the uh, Animal Crimes Division at the at the World Wildlife Fund. And so those were suggestions of theirs. And I think one of the other ones I, re- I remember, uh, I was kind of surprised, they said, you know, keep your dog on a leash when you're walking it in the wild. Uh, And uh, because uh, either uh, the dog runs off and kills something or it runs off and gets killed. Uh, And uh, so keeping something as simple as that can really reduce human wildlife conflict. Uh, But the other reason I wanted to even write about human wildlife conflict in the first place was that I had, you know, when I when I'd written uh, things about like uh, uh, rhino poaching, and I would go to schools and say, you know, rhino poaching is a big problem, or, or poaching elephants for the ivory. That was kind of an easy thing for kids to say. Well, you know what? I don't do that. You know, I, I don't buy uh, rhino horn. I don't buy elephant tusks. So maybe yes, I could make donations to. Um, to uh, uh, to help uh, protect those animals, but uh, but my own activities don't drive that problem. And then I realized that you know there are uh, things that affect us in our own country, or bad decisions we, we make, or, or uh, uh, that that uh, that have uh, adverse effects on animals. And so. Uh, I think sometimes students were really surprised when I started talking about uh, uh, how uh, habitat loss was something we were all complicit in because you just say, hey, look, you know, what was here before the school was built? What was where your house was before your house was built? Uh, You know, animals used to live there and now they don't. And, uh, you know, we all need places to live. We all need places to go to school. I can't do anything about that, but uh, maybe there are things we can do to uh, lessen uh, our our, uh, how much uh, of the world we're destroying and uh, how many animals are dying.
0: Definitely. And while we're on this topic, this is the last one I want to read out of big game. I have it right here. So this one here. So at the back of this one, so on the back of this one, you wrote in recent years, cases of poaching have doubled in Southern Africa. There's a human cost too. more than a thousand park rangers have died fighting poaching poaching in the past decade and i think that was very impactful so i just love that i think it's amazing that you write i just can't get over i love that it really educates kids after they read your book they learn everything about animals and they read an amazing mystery and then at the end they get to learn real facts about them so that's amazing okay so now i'll get back to the questions all right okay so so continuing with this theme, can you explain from your own perspective what human-wildlife conflict is?
1: Human-wildlife conflict is really what happens when uh, humans begin to encroach more and more on, uh, on the wild and, and the animals that live there uh, start to sort of run out of room and become, uh, end up sort of ranging uh, we you know, humans often think of it as like, oh, the animals are coming into our towns and our territory. And really, we're the ones that went into their territory in the first place. So if you've got a, uh, you know, a mountain lion uh, coming into a city or a bear coming into a city or a coyote, that's all because uh, we have cut off their wildlife corridors and, and moved into their territory. And these animals are sort of, uh, they don't really want to come into the city. They're just sort of getting to the point where they're desperate for uh, some uh, some food. And as we uh, you know, as the human population just keeps growing and growing and we keep expanding more and more, uh, the animals are running out of room and these sort of human wildlife uh, uh, conflict issues are just going to get worse and worse and worse unless we sort of change our infrastructure. So uh, as we talked, it, it was mentioned there, uh, building uh, wildlife corridors, making sure uh, that, you know, if we build a new uh, highway, that there's a, a way for animals to get from one side of that highway to the other, usually an underpass, uh, you know, which, which cost money but um you know it's ultimately kind of a small cost in in, in overall uh, so uh yeah there, there are um you know there there are just uh, uh, many many issues and it's a tough problem because as i said we all need to live somewhere and there are more and more of us every day
0: definitely okay so now let's talk about coaching can you tell us in your words what poaching means and how you have included this theme in your fun jungle series?
1: Sure. Uh, well, poaching is uh, there's, there's sort of two versions of it. It's it's illegal uh, killing of animals and it's also sort of illegal theft of animals. And uh, I think the, the killing of animals is the one that, that most, uh, most of my readers sort of think of, and that's the uh, killing of elephants for their, uh, for their ivory tusks or, or the uh, killing of, of rhinos for their horns, uh, a lot of which is driven by... Um, uh, misconceptions about uh uh what rhino horn is even made out of uh there's there's a belief uh, it's completely erroneous that uh, ground up rhino horn uh is a curative of many diseases that's not true uh rhino horn is actually made of keratin which you have on your own body that your fingernails are made out of keratin uh, if it cured disease your doctor would say chew your fingernails and you'd be fine uh that does not work uh yeah so but um you know people are willing to pay a rhino horn is worth more per ounce than gold and uh, that is not good for rhinos so so the best way to fight that uh is actually uh not just uh, by having anti poaching patrols but through education that teaching people that um uh, that rhino horn is not curative, uh, teaching people that, uh, that if they, they want uh, elephant ivory, that elephants actually die uh, to get it. They, 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 I mean, there are people who think that the tusks just fall out of the elephants, uh, you know, like a, like, a, like, a, like a baby tooth, and, and that el- they don't realize that elephants are dying uh, to give them ivory. So, th- th- you know, there is that uh, illegal uh, hunting of animals issue, uh, but uh, actually, the, the theft of animals is is uh, even sort of a bigger issue globally uh the the illegal animal trade uh is is uh, is worth billions of dollars a year it's the single uh, it's the second largest uh, illegal operation on earth after the drug trade and that is that people are are stealing uh, uh animals from the wild either for for uh like you know their skins like uh, pangolins are the most poached uh mammal on earth in this sense uh people are you know if you go in so far, you'll be lucky to see a pangolin but there there are you know thousands of these poor animals are, are stolen uh, every year uh to to make uh they're, they're these little adorable uh anteaters uh that uh have often plates on their on their on their skin and and people want stuff made out of pangolin skin uh there are uh, the illegal wep- reptile trade is massive. Uh, that's people basically, uh, stealing animals and, and, uh, you know, for, uh, for the pet trade, uh, also, uh, people, uh, stealing wild birds from the wild. Uh, so there, there are all these animals and they're getting stolen and sort of shipped around the world illegally. Uh, that's a huge, huge problem. And I, I talk about it in, uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex a little bit, and also actually, uh, in, in Pandemonium, uh, that, uh, yeah, that the, the, there, there are, um, it, it, that, is a, that is a huge problem as well.
0: So one of the things I've learned when I'm conservationist is that poaching is a huge organized crime ring. That there will be one person that is desperate for money and somebody will just go pay them to go out and kill an elephant, for example. And then if that person gets caught, then the the person that made them do it will just keep going until they get the ivory that they want. So it's really sad to think that, you know... There are people out there that are desperate enough to just go out and kill beautiful animals
1: right yes yes unfortunately uh so somebody uh that you know like the ivory or the or the uh rhino horn is worth uh so much that uh someone in 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 who's impoverished can make uh, a a considerable amount of money uh uh, going out and killing this animal uh and you know far more than they can make working uh, a a regular job and you know what's protecting those animals are these these park rangers as you mentioned that you know uh, it is a very dangerous job that that these people are really in a war against the poachers, uh, and and these park rangers are not getting paid that much. They're often working under very extreme conditions, and it's only because of of just these people being amazingly committed people uh, that that these animals are being protected. Um, that, uh, but but we tend to um, we tend to like point the finger at the people doing the actual killing and not the people paying for uh, the product or the people who are really getting rich for the product uh, down the line. And that, that is, again, where where the real focus maybe needs to be instead of on, uh, I mean, as, as bad as someone is for going out and killing uh, an animal, they're, they're not necessarily the root of the problem. The, the root of the problem is somebody wanting to pay for that rhino horn or elephant ivory in the first place.
0: Definitely. Okay, so now I'm gonna switch the topic to technology. And Sorry. what kind of cool technology or gadgets have you come across in your research on protecting animals or even from your Spy School series that could relate to helping animals?
1: Oh, well, um, one of the things that has uh, really changed a lot uh, in, in uh, uh, you know, doing animal research is uh, our ability to uh, sort of work uh, remotely. Uh, it really used to be that if you wanted to study an animal, you had to go find it and, and watch it. Uh, yourself and now we've got uh remote camera traps uh we have drones uh and uh, those are allow people to sort of study animals and, and uh possibly be even uh, uh a little less uh invasive in the animals territory than they used to uh there are uh now uh, tracking devices have gotten so much smaller uh that that uh, you know now the uh, you can actually uh sometimes put a, a tracking device on an animal that that's quite small, uh, where you couldn't before, or, or, uh, uh, and then um, there are now some uh, like there's some people at an organization called WildTrack who are saying, well, maybe we don't even have to put sensors on animals at all, uh, especially big animals. Uh, you know, one of the things we used to do or we still do is to is to uh, put like a big uh, sensory collar on an animal that involves sedating the animal, which is always a little bit dangerous. Uh, and and these folks are saying, oh, you know what you can do is is you can actually um, have a database of all the animals' footprints and and, and an animal's footprint might be as um as uh, individual as as your fingerprint and if you can uh have a database where you can just go out and take a picture of a, of a print you find and match it to all the other prints and figure out which animal you're tracking then you you can know what animal what specific animal came through a place without uh having to uh collar it or uh do anything like that so there there are all these sort of great new innovations in technology that are coming along that are helping us uh study animals uh, in a way that uh, uh, allows us to learn a lot more about them and be less invasive in their lives.
0: Definitely, and technology is what's saving animals. And you can go to the learn. Everyone watching can go to the learning lab and learn how camera traps w- are working. Because camera traps are one of the main things that are really helping save animals. And you can really get your hands on the technology that is going out there in saving species. Okay, so. Do you think that kids my age can start learning this technology now so we can help end extinction?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I, I, and you know, sometimes uh, uh, there are organizations that will um, sort of outsource uh, uh, work that you could, you uh, maybe you could, uh, you know, remotely monitor, uh, 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 an animal population, uh, from, from your computer. Uh, so, uh, there, there are, there are things that, uh, kids can do in, in, in terms of technology. Uh, and there's also, uh, I mean, certainly there are plenty of things that we can all learn about that we can just do in our day-to-day lives. Uh, little changes that we can make in our behavior that, that can certainly help the planet and help animals as well.
0: Definitely. It's up to my generation because we have to step up and if we don't, these animals you really can be gone, do. and we're adults. So it's very important. I'm, I'm
1: sorry we're um, I'm sorry we're we're leaving you with this uh, with this problem. <laughs> but uh, um, we're trying. We're trying our best. A lot of us are trying to, to make changes and, and help uh, you know make sure that we we are leaving you this planet in in somewhat decent shape.
0: Definitely. Okay, so I was thinking, and would you ever consider combining the conservation themes of fun juggle with your love of spying from your Spice School series with the nonstop action of your Charlie Thorne series? I'm thinking something like Pangolin Palooza that includes all the tech that is out there saving animals.
1: Um, I, I, you know... <laughs> Oh, there's pangolins right there, isn't it? Yes, I, I, I know you love pangolins. I love pangolins. They're the best. And, uh, um, it, you know, it is just so awful uh, how many of those animals are, are getting stolen. Uh, I, um, you know, it's, it's always a little tough for me to uh, combine series, but, but creating a whole new thing um, could be fun uh, somewhere down the line. Uh, you know, I love uh, combining science and adventure and conservation. So uh, that doesn't sound like uh, a bad idea to me at all
0: (laughs) okay so where can kids and teens go to learn more about you and just because i'm such a fan what is your next book
1: oh all right uh you can go to stuartgibbs.com uh to learn more about me uh me personally and uh you can uh, find some good environmental organizations that i like on my website as well uh, my next book, uh, which comes out uh, uh, very soon, is uh, "Bear Bottom," which is now the seventh book in the Fun Jungle series. Uh, this one is a, a crime. Uh, not surprisingly, it involves uh, a grizzly bear. Uh, there's actually two crimes. There's there's one involving grizzly bear and one involving uh, uh, American bison, or as a lot of people call them, buffalo. Uh, this is the first book that actually does not take place. At Fun Jungle, uh, I wanted to sort of change things around a little bit so it takes place just outside Yellowstone National Park uh, and deals with... uh uh, some fun crimes up there but also uh, sort of taps into uh, some uh, some truly American uh, issues of, of conservation uh, like uh, you know dealing with how we've treated our uh, own animals in this country like our grizzly bears and our uh, American bison and the answer to that that is we have not treated them very well at all and then perhaps a little bit more fun uh, spy school at sea uh, which is the ninth book in the spy school series but I did throw a tiny bit of conservation into this one as well uh so uh, uh there, there's it's it sort of uh, it, it moves a little bit into fun jungle territory because uh, i wanted to write about uh, a really uh, cool uh, thing that i learned about that uh, occurs in costa rica so um so, I, I, uh, so yes, those, those are the two books coming out. Uh, uh, the third Charlie Thorne will be out next year, the Spy School graphic novel, uh, the 10th Spy School. So that I got a lot coming down the, down the pipeline.
0: That's awesome. Well, that was my final question. Thank you so much for joining Club 15 today. Everybody go to StuartGibbs.com so you can get his books, and I promise you won't be able to put them down. They are so amazing. Stuart, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Kate, thank you so much for doing everything you do and caring so much about the environment and trying to get uh, your fellow uh, members of your generation inspired and willing to act for the future. Let's go! Oh, oh, oh.